Section 5 of The Broken Shaft, Tales in Mid-Ocean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Broken Shaft, Tales in Mid-Ocean, edited by Henry Norman. Section 5. The Action to the Word by Walter Herries Pollock. One of the greatest, if not the greatest, of the social pleasures of my life has been derived from the hours I have been privileged to spend with my dear old friend and teacher, von Karos, the violinist. The public knows him as a master of his art to a certain extent, and he has always been a favourite with them, but his success and his reputation have never been of the kind that his qualities should have commanded. Here and there only, will you find a true lover of music who, when this or that great name of a violin magician is cited, will say half to himself, if there be no sympathetic soul by his side, Yes, a fine player, but nothing to von Karos if the public did but know it. Say rather, I have heard another amateur add, if he would... But let the public know it. It is far from me to assert that the public was in the wrong in this matter, almost as far as to assert that von Karos was in the wrong. All who have followed the notes as true critics must have observed and have been puzzled by such cases of mutual misunderstanding between artist and audience. Sometimes it comes from what a French critic has called Emotion qui ne dépasse point la rampe, and that the case is, I fear, frequent and grievous, at least to the artist. With von Carus it was not so. The public felt his emotion, and wondered that it did not touch them more nearly. He felt that there was something wanting in his contact with them, and, but I am trying vainly to describe what no description of mine can compass, and must fall back on simple statement of fact derived from what I have seen and heard. The large musical, really musical public, the public of the gallery when Italian opera was an institution in England, and of the orchestra in St. James's Hall now, said among each other, This is wonderful playing, why does it not touch us? The clever stupid public of the stalls, the university young men and young women, who had caught the cant of music and knew one hair's breadth of it from the intellectual side, said, Admirable execution, but he can't touch so-and-so's music. And, so saying, gave a half-sigh, half-snort, which expressed extraordinary acquaintance with modern common-room talk and fell gracefully back into their chairs. Musicians simply wondered. I, whose sole claim to the title of musician is due to the instruction of von Carlos himself, wondered with them, but have wondered somewhat less since I heard one of the many stories he has told me as friend to friend, not as teacher to pupil. He took few pupils. I cannot get away from his fascinating personality, as the modern school has it, and with those few he was not apt to be content. 
I think he approved of me merely because I had fathomed the depth of my own ignorance, and came to him feeling that, if I were capable of learning at all, I should learn from him more of the heart of the mystery of music than years of the conventional teaching I had already partly acquired could give me. It is already something, he would say to me in the days of our first acquaintance, to know that you know nothing of this wonderful thing called music. It has taken me more than half a lifetime to find that out. And you, you know it by instinct. And what is more wonderful, the teaching of the schools has not deprived you of your instinct. Therefore, out of my own ignorance, I will give you whatever hint I can to the finding of the secrets of harmony and melody. Do not tell me, I had not, that the two can be separate for the spirit of music. Then he would smoke silently, and then he would give me a lesson profound in knowledge, brilliant in illustration, burning with life and passion. And then he would fall to smoking again and say with a half-assumed sadness, But all this, it is no good to talk to the amateur who wants to find the royal road that exists as much as the road to King Solomon's mines exists. And all this, well, well, I cannot express to the great public that, say what you will, is after all the best judge. With such sayings, I always left him to commune in silence, and that is one strong reason why our friendship never faltered. However, it is not with this man, whom I loved almost as the pupil loved Seraphiel in the beautiful story of Charles Orchester, that I have now to deal so much as with one of the many stories that he told me, the one that threw to my thinking the most light upon his character and career. How he came to tell it was thus. In one of my cherished evenings with him, our talk chanced upon the Huguenots, and von Chaos, who was one of the few German musicians, who deeply admired that Dumas, the father, not the son, of opera, had illustrated some of the soprano passages with a violin which was excellent in public, inspired in private. Presently he asked me to recall to him, as best I could on the piano, the days when that great work drew a fit, though numerous audience to listen to its fine interpretation at the old Her Majesty's, the days when neither lyric nor dramatic stage in England had been ruined by star salaries and vulgar talk about social status. I played on, von Chaos occasionally stopping me with a reproof or a hint, until we arrived at the last act, the act which young opera-goers have never seen on stage in England. As I began it, von Chaos stopped me to remind me of this. So, he said, you attack for me that great piece of dramatic music. So ist's gut. And you wondered a little time ago at the dying of grand opera on English stages. Lieber Freund, when they began to end that opera with the scene of Valentine and Raoul, I knew that opera, as opera should be, was doomed. That a true Jew's music 
should be so truncated to suit the sham Jews who filled the stalls and who wanted to catch their dirty trains. Lieber Herr Je! So he subsided in inarticulate wrath, and I went on playing until I came to that soul-stirring prayer of Marcel's, in which he and his companions see heaven opening to them in its glory, even amid the puny thunder and turmoil of earthly persecution. I began the first notes and stopped. Overcome by the remembrance of the extraordinary effect the scene had produced upon me when I had last heard it, in the old days when music was the real object of the Italian opera in London. I cannot help stopping, I said, to ask you if I am right in thinking that Sponzini, the last singer of Marcel, whom I heard in that scene, was as great an artist as one could wish to hear and see. You are right, answered von Carus. He was, short of La Blache, the greatest expression of that wonderful appeal that you can imagine. The English public, then already brutalized for opera by the star and stall system, did not taste him because he was not puffed, and the virtuosi, with some pedantry, refused him full recognition because, like Ronconi, he was not always sure of his intonation. But he was a great singer and a great actor. Mamma Tosi, he added, mentioning the greatest teacher and critic of singing this age has known, will tell you the same if you ask her. But, mein bester, I am glad for other reasons that you stopped to ask me that question. It makes it more easy for me to beg you not to go on with that scene. Am I wrong? I began to ask, egotism overpowering discretion, when he interrupted me with, In your playing, my child? No, that is well, very well for an amateur. There are other reasons. As he spoke, the look of sadness that I had often seen on his face came over it, and, what was unusual, stayed there. He sank back in his chair, thinking and puffing heavily at his pipe. I, ashamed of my impulsive question, struck one or two chords softly to prevent his or my ear from remembering discontentedly an unfinished theme, and sat opposite to him, awaiting his continued silence or his speech. I will tell you, said von Carus. The thing itself happened just about the time when first Italian opera ceased to be interpreted on English stages by Italians, when the Babel collection of French tenors, Polish or German sopranos, Alsatian baritones and bassi, that odd collection of Vassi Wünschen in the way of singing nationalities that went on for so many years had first begun. Then, in the early time, it was always Signor and Signora in the bills, whatever the country of the singer. And that was at least as sensible as the silly kind of compromises they introduced afterward. This talk, von Carlos delivered, as I thought, with a somewhat exaggerated air of lightness and conscious irrelevance, and when he went on, he fell into a graver tone as he said, But the beginning of the story... I'm going to tell you, goes back many years further than that. It goes back, indeed, to the early days of my own youth, when I was a humble member of a small band at a small theatre in Germany. 
small, I mean, in its importance, for the stage was large enough, too large, indeed, for the scanty chorus that our small state aid afforded. For the town itself, it is one of which comparatively few English opera-goers have heard. You, who have travelled in Germany, probably know it, and therefore I shall not try to describe it exactly any more than I shall give you the real names of the parties concerned. However, continued the violinist, let me get on to the story without more forewords. It is not an enticing one to tell, and I would not tell it but to you. The first time I saw her was on a summer evening. I had walked to the theatre through the streets of the strange old-fashioned town, which always had to me such an air of unreality, with the vague reminiscences of a past royalty that hung about its operatic-looking buildings. I was tired both of the place and of my business there, and the knowledge that a first appearance was to take place that night had not roused me from my dreamy discontent. She had appeared at other towns, of no European fame, with success, and she came to our company als Gast, a rehearsal had been arranged for the morning, but she arrived late and tired after the band had been graciously excused from dancing attendance for her doubtful arrival any longer. She had gone through the mere business of her scenes with the stage manager, and of course she knew her words and music well enough to dispense in such a case with full rehearsal. Her name was, I will call her Fräulein Della Mandola, and she made her first appearance as Agatha in Der Freischütz. When she came on the stage, I was still moody and was looking at nothing but my part of the score, which, as it seemed to me, I knew already too well. But her voice, when she began to sing then, I looked up and I saw on the stage the most beautiful, the most attractive creature I have ever seen. Imagine her as you will from that description I will not attempt to describe her more closely, for her voice. You have heard Mademoiselle Gerster, I bowed assent. Well, it was a voice of that quality, and the method was not unlike. I, looking back, still think that, with all technical faults of a beginner, the freshness and charm of that representation have never been surpassed, but by this time you have guessed that I fell madly in love with the Fräulein at first sight and hearing, and therefore I am still, with that memory yet clinging to me, what you call a prejudiced witness. Von Carus leaned back again, and seemed to give himself up for a few moments to recollection before he resumed his story. The impression she made upon me was, more or less, that which she produced upon the whole audience, an instructed and critical audience enough, though, as I tell you, it was not the kind of theatre where the travelling impresario of past times was likely to be on the lookout for a prodigy. But the sweetness and force of the voice, the spontaneity, as it seemed in singing and acting, the modesty, both individual and artistic, which tempered all the fire of the performance, these things made della mandola a favourite at once, and led to her taking an engagement of several weeks. Every time she sang, which was about twice a week, the house was full. Every time she made herself more and more admired and beloved, and every time I, 
wretched fiddler that I was, fell more in love with her, with a love that I never declared, that I have never even spoken of till now. What would that have profited me to speak of it? She was immeasurably out of my reach, I knew, and she was that two years or so older than myself that made it natural for her to treat me as a boy, to whom it was careless kindness to give a pleasant smile and a pleasant word when occasion offered. Besides, and believe me here, that I was not ever jealous of this with a lover's jealousy. Very soon she and our tenor for the season found out each other's good qualities and were understood by all of us in the theatre to be betrothed. It would have been a pretty match. He was half German, half Italian, and had then, at least, from his German father, some solid qualities of wisdom and judgment, which should have been valuable in their menage. Ah, he stopped again, and I was beginning to ask a question, which he answered before I had completed it in words. No, lieber Freund, he said, that was not to be. They parted at the end of the season, full of love and trust in each other. Each was going to fulfill another promising engagement, and each looked forward to their meeting on the great lyric stages of Europe to share triumphs deserved by talent and hard work, and to match their triumphs by those of a happy marriage. They were to correspond constantly, and there was to be no black spot in their happy life. So she went to Italy, and then her dreams of extravagant success came true. She was adored wherever she went, and the London engagement came far sooner than she had expected it. He, it is a story so simple and so tragic, I can tell you it in four words, and you will know what is coming. He lost his voice. Taken with what had gone before, and especially with certain intonations and gestures of von Carus, as he had spoken, the words were tragic enough, and I guessed from them part, though not all of the sequel, which he proceeded to tell me with the rapid utterance of a man who wishes to get quickly through a painful task. His emotion caused him at times to speak in his native German, but I give his words in English throughout. I heard of this misfortune, and I heard that when he broke the news to her, he received a letter from her full of encouragement and love, which made up as much as anything could for his grief and disappointment. Then I, too, went about to seek a better fortune as a violinist, and in my little way as a composer, and, save for news now and again of the de la Mandola's continued success, I saw and heard nothing more of them directly, until I found myself playing a violin in the orchestra of the old Her Majesty's Theatre, that delightful theatre with the amber hangings. She had sung one or two parts, in which she had completely captivated the English public, and she had met me once or twice in and out of the theatre, and had had her gracious smile and her kind words of old for me, with the same innocent, caressing manner that I remembered so well. I had been told that, of late, she had put this manner and its charms to no very noble uses, and though the man who told me so was my bosom friend, it went near to being an ill thing either for him or for me that he had said it. Well, let me get on. She was to appear for the first time before an English public as Valentine in the Huguenot. There were as many rehearsals as could be managed, and I, 
who had never seen or heard her in this great part, took, of course, a great and special interest in it. One day I met her after rehearsal, and in the middle of paying her compliments and offering her, at her own request, a hint here and there, I suddenly asked her for news of Eugen, that was the first name of the tenor of the old days. I could not guess at the moment what impulse prompted me to do this, any more than I could tell why I had never asked after him in our former meetings. She started, and in her face it was as if first a storm of lightning and then a sudden weeping of rain had come. I do not mean that she wept, but that there was the rapid change from a sudden fury to a grief and sadness as sudden. Then she drew herself up with a dignity that made her slight form so majestic on the stage at great moments of passion, and saying coldly that she could give me no news upon this subject, she went to her carriage and left me feeling humiliated. Five minutes afterward I knew why I had asked her the question. As the strange-looking crowd of chorus singers straggled out of the stage entrance, my eye was caught by one figure that I had noticed vaguely at rehearsal, not knowing why I noticed it at all. I knew now. It was Eugen. I did not know whether I should do well to speak to him or not, but he solved the question for me. He recognized me and came up to me with a hint in his gait of the old grace and dash that had made people speak of him as the one tenor who might, perhaps, take the place of the king of all the tenors. What a Raoul, I thought to myself, for her, Valentine, if only his voice had lasted. Herr von Carus, he said, as he came close to me, you, I know, are not one to turn your back on an old friend because his fortunes are fallen. I pressed his hand. It was hot and trembling. His face was pale, and there was a strange look in his eyes. I said to him all the things that old friendship could suggest, avoiding only one subject, and I persuaded him to come to breakfast with me at once, feeling pretty sure that he needed physical as well as mental solace. During the breakfast he resumed, but with an exaggeration that could not but strike me, his old gaiety of manner, and told me, with a humour that had something biting in it, various adventures he had had since he had lost his voice, and with it his hopes. As we smoked after breakfast, he suddenly became taciturn, and the sparkle in his eyes gave place to that same fierce heavy look that had surprised me before. Suddenly he got up, said to me, I have written to her, and went his way. That was the only reference to her that passed between us, and its effect upon me was indescribably painful. The next night but one was that of her first appearance as Valentine, and in the intervening day I had no opportunity of speaking either to her or to him. Indeed, he seemed to avoid me. On the afternoon before her appearance, I fell in with him. He looked paler, thinner, more desperate than before. This time, again, he sought me of his own accord, and said in a tone which appeared to me terribly quiet, It will be a triumph, an effect that will never be forgotten. And again, he disappeared swiftly without giving me the chance of a reply. I confess to you that I shuddered without knowing why and was ashamed of myself for doing so. Well, it was a great triumph. 
as scene followed scene the diva gained greater and greater feeling of her part greater and greater hold upon her audience among the musicians between the acts there was but one opinion that this was the finest valentine that the stage had seen for years in the excitement i clean forgot eugen then came that last scene sponzini of whom you spoke just now then in the fullness of his youth and power delivered the prayer like one inspired and she with voice action and expression shared the exultation that triumphs over impending death sanbris came on at the head of his detachment of king's troops and gave the fatal order del re in nome fuoco it was not seen at first it was not seen till the fall of the curtain what had happened mein lieber she was shot through the heart and among those of the king's troops also was one who was dead there was a pause no continued von carus answering my unasked question the shot was always attributed to accident and for him for eugen there was no doubt he had heart disease for the man who was at the time supposed to be in close relations with her what matters it to speak but you do not wonder that i have strange and painful notions of the last act of the huguenot what a situation exclaimed the eminent tragedian and critic simultaneously as the musical voice of the narrator ceased the action to the word indeed added the former poor thing said beatrice tenderly in a low voice to have let a thoughtless love come into her life and then to expiate it by dying with the words of a sham one on her lips what a sad story and she rose and gathered her wraps together and went below all the men assisting her to the head of the gangway the following evening was starless but serene a veil spread over the upper sky but along the horizon lay banked-up clouds behind which summer lightnings played from time to time throwing them out into weird and spectral relief the sea heaved in long lazy pulsations and the waves were picked out with gold by the lines of lambent phosphorescence along their drifting summits the wind was just sufficient to steady the ship making her lie over so little that she seemed almost to ride on an even keel there was a sense of languor over everything which would have been delightful had it not meant a beggarly account of knots in the twenty-four hours run our party assembled after dinner in the lee of the smoking-room through the windows of which sufficient light streamed forth to make figures recognizable though it left features in the vague the critic's story cried the novelist now he added turning to the romancer providence hath delivered our enemy into our hands we are to have the satisfaction for which job longed in vain our critic has written a book or at least has concocted a story not at all replied the critic no concoction in the matter it is an adventure which befell an acquaintance of mine and i read it from his manuscript he sent it me for my opinion and i promised to try and place it in america i am curious to see how it strikes you fiat experimentum in short said the romancer 
I did not put it in that way, returned the critic, and rising so as to let the lamplight fall on the bundle of manuscript in his hand, he read as follows. End of section 5 Recording by Ulrike Denis